Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi, I'm Otessa. Uh, let's see. I'll just give you a moment to absorb me. (laughs) I come to readings because I'm curious what authors look and feel like. And I usually can't hear what they're saying when they're reading from their stuff because I'm distracted by the experience that I'm having. Um, So if you are listening and you're zoning out, you just, like, look at my mole and it, like, will center you. (laughs) Thanks for laughing. (laughs) I was just telling my new friend that it's weird reading from this book. I usually write short stories, and my short stories tend to be funny, or at least they tend to be funny when I read them out loud. And the experience of that is, like, I know you guys are into it because you're laughing. And this book is a little different. Um, I don't know how much any of you know about the book, but uh, it's not like a ha-ha funny book. <laughs> and um, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I read it and find it just completely ridiculous, and other times I'm really moved by it. Um, so it's interesting to present it to you and have a new experience each time. Mm. Because each time you are different people. The last, the last reading I gave was in Seattle, and very few people came. But the people that came seemed to really want to be there. And it made me appreciate how awesome it is that people actually give a shit that people write books so much that they'll leave their house to come see somebody babbling on about it. So I'll stop it. And um, what I'm going to do is read from the opening, just so that you can hear what the sound of this narrator's voice is like and get a sense of the character. It takes place in 1964. Mm, what else? I mean, you don't, I don't really need to say too much because this is the beginning. And it's called Eileen. Okay, Eileen. Okay, Eileen. <laughs> I looked like a girl you'd expect to see on a city bus, reading some cloth-bound book from the library about plants or geography, perhaps wearing a net over my light brown hair. You might take me for a nursing student or a typist, note the nervous hands, a foot tapping, bitten lip. I looked like nothing special. It's easy for me to imagine this girl, a strange, young, and mousy version of me, carrying an anonymous leather purse, or eating from a small package of peanuts, rolling each one between her gloved fingers, sucking in her cheeks, staring anxiously out the window. The sunlight in the morning illuminated the thin down on my face, which I tried to cover with pressed powder, a shade too pink for my wan complexion. I was thin, my figure was jagged, my movements pointy and hesitant, my posture stiff. The terrain of my face was heavy with soft, rumbling acne scars, blurring whatever delight or madness lay beneath that cold and deadly New England exterior. 
If I'd, if I'd worn glasses, I could have passed for smart, but I was too impatient to be truly smart. You'd have expected me to enjoy the stillness of closed rooms, take comfort in dull silence, my gaze moving slowly across paper, walls, heavy curtains, thoughts never shifting from what my eyes identified, book, desk, tree, person. But I deplored silence. I deplored stillness. I hated almost everything. (laughs) I was very unhappy and angry all the time. I tried to control myself, and that only made me more awkward, unhappier, and angrier. I was like Joan of Arc or Hamlet, but born into the wrong life, the life of a nobody, a waif, invisible. There's no better way to say it. I was not myself back then. I was someone else. I was Eileen. Thank you so much for having me. I forgot to tell you that I'm really happy to be at Skylight, and um, it's nice to be here. Okay. And back then, this was 50 years ago, I was a prude. Just look at me. I wore heavy wool skirts that fell past my knees, thick stockings. I always buttoned my jackets and blouses as high as they could go. I wasn't a girl who turned heads, but there was nothing really so wrong or terrible about my appearance. I was young and fine, average, I guess, but at the time, I thought I was the worst, ugly, disgusting, unfit for the world. In such a state, it seemed ridiculous to call attention to myself. I rarely wore jewelry, never perfume, and I didn't paint my nails. For a while, I did wear a ring with a little ruby in it. It had belonged to my mother. My last days as that angry little Eileen took place in late December in the brutal cold town where I was born and raised. The snow had fallen for the winter, a good three or four feet of it. It sat staunchly in every front yard, rolled out at the lip of every first floor windowsill like a flood. During the day, the top layer of snow melted and the slush in the gutters loosened a bit And you remembered that life was joyful from time to time, that the sun did shine. But by afternoon, the sun had disappeared, and everything froze all over again, building a glaze on the snow so thick at night it could hold the weight of a full-grown man. Each morning, I threw salt from the bucket by the front door down the narrow path from the porch to the street. Icicles hung from the rafter over the front door, and I stood there imagining them cracking and darting through my breasts, slicing through the thick thick gristle of my shoulder like bullets or cleaving my brain into pieces. The sidewalk had been shoveled by the next-door neighbors, a family my father distrusted because they were Lutheran and he was Catholic. But he just distrusted everyone, He was fearful and crazy, the way old drunks get. Those Lutheran neighbors had left a wicker white basket, a white wicker basket of cellophane-wrapped waxed apples, a box of chocolates, and a bottle of sherry by the front door for Christmas. I remember the card read, Bless you both. Who really knew what happened inside the house while I was at work? 
It was a three-story colonial of brown wood and flaking red trim. I imagined my father sucking down that sherry in the spirit of Christmas, lighting an old cigar on the stove. That's a funny picture. Generally, he drank gin, beer occasionally. He was a drunk, as I said. He was simple in that way. When something was the matter, he was easy to distract and soothe. I'd just hand him a bottle and leave the room. Of course, his drinking put a strain on me as a young person. It made me very tense and edgy. That happens when one lives with an alcoholic. My story in this sense is not unique. Blah, blah, blah. I'm too old to concern myself with other people's affairs. I'm skipping around. I'm too old to concern myself with other people's affairs, and I no longer waste my time thinking ahead into the future, worrying about things that haven't happened yet. I really wish I could not do that. But I worried all the time when I was young, not least of all about my future, and mostly with respect to my father, how long he had left to live, what he might do, what I would find when I got home from work each evening. Ours was not a very nice home. After my mother died, we never sorted or put her things away, never rearranged anything, and without her to clean it, the house was dirty and dusty and full of useless decorations and crowded with things, things everywhere. And yet it felt completely empty. It was like an abandoned home, its owners having fled one night like Jews or gypsies. We didn't use the den or the dining room or the upstairs bedrooms much. Everything just sat there, collecting dust. A magazine splayed over the arm of the couch for years, candy dish full of dead ants. I remember it like those photos of homes in the desert ravaged by nuclear testing. I think you can imagine the details for yourself. Okay. This one evening, I'll begin my story here. I found him sitting barefoot on the stairs, her dad, her father, drinking sherry, the butt of a cigar between his fingers. Poor Eileen, he said sarcastically when I walked through the door. He was, con- he was very contemptuous of me, found me pathetic and unattractive, and had no qualms about saying so. If my daydreams from back then came true, one day I'd have found him splayed out at the bottom of the stairs, neck broken but still breathing. It's about time, I'd say, with the most bored affect I could muster, peering over his dying body. So I loathed him, yes, but I was very dutiful. It was just the two of us in the house, Dad and me. I do have a sister, still alive as far as I know, but we haven't spoken in over 50 years. Hi, Dad, I said, passing him on the stairs. He was not a very large man, but he had broad shoulders and long legs, a sort of regal look about him. His thinning gray hair stood up, and high, stood up high and bowed over the crown of his head. His face appeared to be decades older than he really was, and bore in it a wide-eyed skepticism and a look of perpetual disapproval. In retrospect, he was much like the boys in the prison where I worked, sensitive and angry. 
His hands shook all the time, no matter how much he drank. He was always rubbing at his chin, which was red and drawn and wrinkled. He'd tug at it the way you'd rub the head of a young boy and call him a little rascal. That never quite worked. His one regret in life, he said, was that he'd never been able to grow a real beard, as though he could have willed it, but he had failed to. He was like that, regretful and arrogant and illogical at once. I don't think he ever really loved his children. The wedding band he continued to wear years after her death suggested that he'd loved our mother to some degree at least, but I suspect he was incapable of love, real love. He was a cruel character. Imagining his parents beating him as a child is the only path to forgiveness that I've found so far. It isn't perfect, but it does the trick. This isn't a story of how awful my father was, let me be clear. Bemoaning his cruelty is not the point of this at all. But I do remember that day on the stairs how he winced when he turned to look up at me, as though the sight of me made him ill. I stood on the landing, looking down. You're going out again, he croaked, to Lardner's. Lardner's was the liquor store across town. Anyway, so she she goes, um, and she says... My father's demands that I do his bidding like a maid, a servant, were constant, but I was not the kind of girl to say no to anyone. That's kind of important in the book. Um, Let's see. If you'd seen me back then with a barrette in my hair, my mousy gray wool coat, you'd have expected me to be just a minor character in this saga. Conscientious, conscientious, even-tempered, dull, irrelevant. I looked like a shy and gentle soul from afar, and sometimes I wished I was one. But I cursed and blushed and broke out in sweats quite often, and that day I slammed the bathroom door shut by kicking it with the full sole of my shoe, nearly busting the hinges. I looked so boring, lifeless, immune, and unaffected, but in truth, I was always furious, seething, my thoughts racing, my mind like a killer's. It was easy to hide behind the dull face. I really thought I had everybody fooled, and I didn't really read books about flowers or home economics. I liked books about awful things, murder, illness, Death. I remember selecting one of the thickest books from the public library, A Chronicle of Ancient Egyptian Medicine, to study the gruesome practice of pulling the brains of the dead out through the nose like skeins of yarn. I like to think of my brain like that, tangled up in my skull. The idea that my brains could become... No. The idea that my brains could be untangled, straightened out, and thus refashioned into a state of peace and sanity was a comforting fantasy. I often felt there was something wired weird in my brain, a problem so complicated only a lobotomy could solve it. I'd need a whole new mind and a whole new life. I could be very dramatic in these self-assessments. Besides books, I enjoyed my issues of National Geographic magazine, which I got delivered to me in the mail. That was a real luxury and made me feel very special. Articles describing the naive beliefs of the primitives fascinated me. 
their blood rights, the human sacrifices, all that needless suffering. I was dark, you might say, moony, but I don't think I was really so hard-hearted by nature. Had I been born into a different family, I might have grown up to act and feel perfectly normal, whatever that means. If I had slammed the front door hard on my, on my way out, okay, so now she's going to the liquor store to buy her dad booze. If I had slammed the front door hard on my way out, as I was tempted to, one of those icicles overhead would have surely cracked off. I imagined one plummeting through the hollow of my collarbone and stabbing me straight through the heart. Or had I tilted my head back, perhaps it would have soared down my throat, scraping the vacuous center of my body. I liked to picture these things. And followed through to my guts, finally parting my nether regions like a glass dagger. That was how I imagined my anatomy back then. Brain like tangled yarn, body like an empty vessel, private parts like some strange foreign country. But I was careful shutting the door, of course. I didn't really want to die. So... Hmm. Oh. Sorry, guys. So I'm not going to read this part, but the car that she drives is broken, basically. Like, there's something wrong with the exhaust. So she has to drive with the windows open. And she feels kind of, like, brave because of it, because it's so cold. Like, look at me, how brave I am driving in the cold with my windows down. Anyway. That night, it must have been down close to single digits. It hurt just to breathe. But I preferred cold weather over hot. Summers, I was restless and cranky. I'd break out in rashes, have to lie in cold baths. I'd sit at my desk in the prison, whipping a a paper fan furiously at my face. I did not like to sweat in front of other people. Such proof of carnality I found lewd, disgusting. Similarly, I did not like to dance or do sports. I did not listen to the Beatles or watch Ed Sullivan on TV. I wasn't interested in fun or popularity back then. I preferred to read about ancient times, distant lands. Knowledge of anything current or faddish made me feel I was just a victim of isolation. If I avoided all that on purpose, I could believe I was in control. So she's driving, and she says, The town was a pretty place, quaint, you'd call it. And unless you've grown up in New England, you don't know the peculiar stillness of a coastal town covered in snow at night. It is not like in other places. The light does something funny at sunset. It seems not to wane, but to recede out toward the ocean. The light just gets pulled away. So she goes into Lardner's and buys gin and then comes home and says, oh, and then she, says, she, she remarks on the fact that alcohol doesn't freeze. Okay. My father was in his chair in the kitchen when I got back to the house. Nothing special happened that night. 
It's just a place to begin. I set the bottles down within his reach on the floor and crumpled the paper bag in my fist, threw it at the pile of trash by the back door. I walked up to the attic. She sleeps in the attic. He, he sleeps in the kitchen. I read my magazine. I went to bed. So here we are. My name was Eileen Dunlop. Now you know me. I was 24 years old and had a job that paid $57 a week as a kind of secretary at a private juvenile correctional facility for teenage boys. I think of it now as what it really was, for all intents and purposes, a prison for children. I will call it Moorhead. Delvin Moorhead was a terrible landlord I had years later, and so to use his name for such a place feels appropriate. In a week, I would run away from home and never go back. This is the story of how I disappeared. And then she goes on to tell the story. <laughs> so I'll stop there. Yeah, so if uh, anyone has a question, Oh, such a weird transition. Okay. So I'm very happy to answer any questions. If anyone has one. Are you from New England? I am. I'm from outside of Boston, and I lived there until I was 17. Mm-hmm. And I'm moving back there, actually, tomorrow. <laughs> it's a really good question. I'm just drawn to do that. I left, I left home thinking, like, fuck this place. Why would I want to... I mean, you know, I'm not Eileen, but I understand her desire to leave home. You know, and I think that's a big thing about self-loathing. You know, if you hate where you come from and you hate yourself, the first, the first chance to change is get the fuck out of there, right? Um, so I guess that's what I did, and now I have changed. I'm kind of curious, revisiting all that stuff... Uh, what will it make me want to do? How's it going to make me feel? Will I want to run away again? Will I have the patience and strength to tolerate it and write about it? What would come of that? And then what would I do? I don't know. So I guess that, yeah, I guess I do know. That's why. Do you feel like it's a risk to move back there? I think it's a risk to do anything. (laughs) I think it's a risk not to do anything. I don't. I feel pretty strong. I don't. I don't think I'm walking into the lion's den. You know. Mhm. Mhm. When did you know this was a novel? When I decided to write a novel. I decided to write a novel. I knew that I could do it, and I did it. I didn't really know what would happen. Um, but it was sort of a strategic move. I really felt that I was only a short story writer, and to write a novel was a bit of a sellout. And so I thought, I'll sell out and see what what that feels like and see what m- me selling out looks like. And this is kind of what happened. And I don't feel that I have compromised my integrity but I have given myself permission not to be hated all the time. Because I sort of feel like 
The short story is, is an invitation to just hate me. And um, Eileen is an invitation for you to me or something. There, it's a different connection. It's a diff- I'm connecting with you in a completely different way in this novel than I am in my short stories. I don't know if anybody's read any of my short stories, but they're in a different register. And, I lo- and one big difference is I love this woman. Like, I care for her. And she's taught me a lot about how to be brave. And, um, and so I didn't want to humiliate her the way that I humiliate my characters in my short fiction. And I, and we know, and in, in so doing, Eileen taught me that I'm actually a nice person and that I, I've just been, you know, traumatized in, into hating other people and actually needed to heal in the same way that Eileen needs to heal. So, yeah, so I thought I was sitting down to, you know, make some money so I could eat lunch tomorrow. And then this happened, you know? So I discovered a lot. Mm-hmm. When you started, did you have the end in mind? Ha ha ha. People always want to know that. Was it like she was talking to you as you were going? <clears throat> okay, well, what I can say about that is like I knew she was going to get away. But what is going to come and interrupt this woman's life to make that possible because it's very hard to change you know like you see it all the time it's like you I've been trying to quit smoking for seven months every day I'm trying you know like what's going to interrupt my bullshit so that I can not do that every day um, and her the risk that she, she takes I mean she knows that okay she has two options she can stay in Xville is what she calls this hometown she can stay there and die and I think deciding to stay would be a spiritual death anyway and then she'd just be this drone and just this empty person and she hasn't gotten to that point yet I mean you can tell she has some interests right like she has an imagination she has a relationship with herself and her body and and you'll see what other things she relates to so I didn't think she was going to die I knew she was going to get out so my job as the writer is like give her the thing that's going to give her the impetus to leave. And that, that was kind of my challenge, you know? Because so much of writing is about setting up obstacles, you know? But in this case, the obstacle is actually um, the vehicle. What about comparison to like, the blue? I mean, because I've read articles where it says I felt like McGlue was a novella and I think calling this a debut novel has nothing to do with me it's just like something Penguin Press used to help publicize the book coming out I don't feel like it's weird to me that Eileen is the debut big thing because it doesn't feel as much me as my collection of short stories, which comes out um, late next year. So I don't know what's going to happen to this book. I don't know where it's going to end up landing, because I plan on writing like 100 more books, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, McGlue is really different, but I think if you read McGlue, 
next to Eileen, you can also tell that I've been thinking about the same shit my whole life. <laughs> yeah, but I think of it as a novella. Yeah. How did this character first appear to you? You know, it appeared to me in shadow. The first character in the book came through real life. And not to give anything away, but there is a young boy in this prison who suffered an incredible amount of the most kind of perverse abuse you could imagine. And uh, he's the one in prison. And it's just, it's, I heard this story, I had a friend who was making a documentary. Actually, I met him like up the street when I was living in LA. He was making a documentary film about juveniles serving life sentences. And he told me that day, uh, we were at dinner, he said that that day he'd talked to this boy, or this man, actually he'd grown by then. And his, he, you know, told me what his parents had done to him and he had ended up killing his father. And now he's li- like li- going to live in jail for prison for the rest of his life. And the details of that abuse were so disgusting and interesting to me. I could not, like when I sat down and decided I, I write novel now, you know, like my mind instantly went to like, well, what's the worst, most perverted thing somebody does? And, you know, and it's here, like that happened in this to this boy. And so I wasn't thinking about Eileen at all. I was like, well, who's going to be, like, I, I, I can't write his story. And, you know, I, I wonder about that now. Could I have written his story? You know, is that, or is that obnoxious? I don't know. I mean, I guess I needed to write Eileen. I needed to find her character. But then I was thinking about Rebecca, the Daphne du Maurier, but actually Hitchcock's Rebecca. And the way that Rebecca never appears in that film. And yet, in my imagination, I see her perfectly, you know? And then I was thinking about, you know, the no-name, you know, new wife in that story. And so I decided I wasn't going to write from a Rebecca viewpoint. I was going to write the viewpoint that is very unpopular and that's the woman who hates herself, you know? There's nobody, I don't know. It's like my experience, and I know a lot about that, so I'm going to, like, why wouldn't I write that, you know, and really push it to its, to its worst, you know? And that I found really interesting, and I thought her character was interesting, and I wondered, what, what was she going to do, you know? Like, how would she react to certain things? Um, yeah, and that's, and that's sort of why I named the book Eileen, like after her, uh, because she do, does disappear, and, she, and in that sense, she isn't ever really there, so she's kind of like Rebecca, too. I don't know. Do you guys know that movie? Yeah, yeah great. Is there a real prison that's based on? Mm, I did a little research because I really was thinking that this uh, child prison would be like somewhere remote on the 
on the coast in Massachusetts and an old, old building. And so I found this building. I don't remember what it was, but it had been used over the past like 300 years for all these different things, and then it had finally turned into a prison. And it was just so funny thinking about like that's like uh, the identity of a building and how it just like keeps getting worse until finally it's a prison. You know, I think at some point it was like, you know, a hospital for veterans. And it was like, for the criminally insane. And no, it's like a prison for children. You know, and anyway, I think they tore it down. Yeah. Cool. I don't know. Is there one more question? Are there any greater strains? It's a really good question, and not one that I I can answer so easily. I don't read my contemporaries very much. Actually, don't read very much, so I feel pretty out of the loop when it comes to that. But um, I I often what I choose to read, I choose. by recommendation, like somebody who tells me, oh, I think you'll like this, you know? And then I usually am like, well, what do you know? And then um, if I read it, I'll, maybe I'll read it, and I'll be so happy, you know? So I'm really happy to read and like something, but um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You said you made a decision to write, to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, was there a time when you made a decision to be a writer? You know, it was a different kind of decision. I knew that I was a writer, but I had also been a pianist. And so I made a decision to not be a pianist. (laughs) And then, sort of by default, I was only a writer. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good? Yeah. Thank you guys so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.